This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. I'm your co-host, Pranav Rajparkar. And I'm Adriel Saporta. Welcome to our episode of the AI Health Podcast. Today, we're going to change gears and talk about some of the investing aspects of healthcare and AI. Yes. And we'll start off with some background on some of the more core concepts around insurance that will serve as a basis for our conversation around healthcare investing. Awesome. I'm excited to learn about insurance and healthcare investing. Let's dive in. Okay. So I want to start with a little bit of history here. In 1965, President Johnson, aka LBJ, signed into law a bill that established Medicare and Medicaid. CMS, which is a term that you'll hear often in this space, is the federal agency that oversees these and other programs. And CMS, very logically, stands for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And could you describe what Medicaid and Medicare do, especially for our listeners who may not be from the U.S.? Yeah. So Medicare and Medicaid are both government-funded health insurance programs. Medicare provides health coverage for seniors age 65 and older, and also for people with certain disabilities or illnesses like ALS. Medicaid provides health coverage to people with low incomes. And to give you a sense of how popular these two programs are, in 2019, so last year, over 60 million people were enrolled in Medicare, and over 75 million people were enrolled in Medicaid. That's a sizable portion of the U.S. population of 328 million. So let's just focus on Medicare. Now, are there different ways of getting Medicare coverage? Yeah. So at a high level, the government offers two ways to get Medicare coverage. One is referred to as original Medicare, since it was the original way that Medicare was offered. And the second way was introduced in 1997 and then rebranded in 2003 as Medicare Advantage. I'm guessing that the big difference between these two programs, the original Medicare and Medicare Advantage, is who bears the financial variability of the health outcomes? That's exactly right. So let's start with original Medicare. In the original model, the government is the payer. In other words, the government is the insurer. They're the ones who are providing insurance to beneficiaries. So the government effectively is taking on the risk of how much money it's going to cost to keep people healthy. So if a beneficiary or a patient consumes more services, then the government is on the hook for more medical bills. If the beneficiary consumes fewer services, then the government is on the hook for fewer medical bills. So from the government's perspective, this means that there could be more uncertainty in terms of its financial responsibility year to year or even region to region. Okay, so for original Medicare, the government is the payer. What about for Medicare Advantage? In Medicare Advantage, the government effectively outsources the financial risk to approved private insurance companies. So the government is no longer the direct insurer. Now private insurance companies are the payers. And the government pays these private insurance companies a fixed fee per beneficiary. And of course, that fee is negotiated between the government and the private insurers. And then in exchange for that fixed fee, the private insurers will manage the beneficiary's health care. So now the private insurers are the ones who are taking on the risks associated with health outcomes. And as a result, they have an incentive to keep those outcomes positive because they want the government to keep on working with them. But they also want to do this in a way that's actually efficient from a cost perspective so that they can keep themselves making a margin because you have to remember their businesses. So from the government perspective, 
they have very clear visibility into what they're on the hook for year to year, which is great. But what's great for consumers is that in theory, this setup also unlocks the ingenuity of the private sector to come up with creative ways to keep those healthcare costs down while also unlocking competition between private insurance companies. Got it. So those are the two types of Medicare coverage. There's the fee-for-service original Medicare, in which the government is the insurer, and Medicare Advantage, where the insurance risk is moved off the government balance sheet and onto approved private insurers. Is one of the two programs more popular than the other? Yeah. So Medicare Advantage has actually become more popular over the years. According to the Kaiser Family Foundation, which is a nonprofit that focuses on national health issues, in 2019, of the 60 plus million people enrolled in Medicare, one third of them are enrolled in Medicare Advantage plans. And over the past decade, that number actually has just doubled. And it's going to keep growing. The Congressional Budget Office projects that by 2029, Medicare Advantage plans will represent about 47% of Medicare enrollment. And why is this? Proponents of Medicare Advantage would say that offering more choice and options just tends to be better for consumers. People can pick and choose whatever plan is right for them at a cost that's right for them. One thing we hear a lot about in relation to CMS is the Affordable Care Act. Can you walk us through what the Affordable Care Act did? Yeah, so the Affordable Care Act, also known as the ACA or Obamacare, is the massive healthcare reform bill that President Obama signed into law back in 2010. It's basically a list of healthcare policies that extend coverage to the millions of Americans who would otherwise be uninsured. And it does this in a whole host of ways, in, including creating health insurance exchanges, preventing insurance companies from denying coverage to people who have pre-existing conditions. There's an employer mandate that requires employers with over 50 employees to provide health insurance options or else face penalties. It also allows children to remain on their parents' health insurance plans until age 26, which I was personally very grateful for since the law was passed right before I graduated from college. <laughs> so thank you, President Obama. Oh. But the most important way that the ACA extended health coverage to Americans was by making it easier to become eligible for Medicaid. And this eligibility expansion for Medicaid is huge. There are a lot of reasons why people may not be covered. The cost of health insurance is too high or they don't have coverage through a job. But after the ACA was passed, the number of non-insured, non-elderly Americans, so these are people who would not otherwise be covered under Medicare, declined by 20 million, dropping to a historic low in wow. 2016. And so our guest today, who we'll be talking to in a minute, is Annie Lamont. She is a total legend in healthcare investing. The New York Times described her as, quote, one of the most successful women ever in the lofty realm of venture capital, unquote. And she was number 49 in Forbes' Midas list. She has worked in venture capital for over three decades. And you have to remember that when she started out, venture was really a field that was dominated by men. Today, Annie is a co-founder and managing partner of Oak HCFT, a venture capital firm that invests in healthcare and fintech and has about $1.9 billion in assets under management. Annie's invested in a long list of successful companies in healthcare, some of which have gone public, some of which have been acquired, but I'm especially excited to ask about Aspire Health, a company she invested in that was acquired a couple of years ago by Anthem, which is one of the largest healthcare insurance companies in the world. Adriel, do you want to tell us a little bit more about Aspire and how they're using AI? Yeah, so... 
Aspire Health is a palliative care company that helps patients in the last one to two years of life. And OKHCFT invested in their Series C back in 2015. And Aspire became maybe best known for this predictive algorithm that they developed that can identify which patients will die in the next year or so. And so Aspire will work with health plans like Aetna or Blue Cross, and then we'll use their algorithm to sort through patients' medical claims, looking for diagnoses like late-stage cancer or a pattern of frequent hospitalizations. And then those patients are offered palliative care. And could you remind us what palliative care is? Palliative care is for people with serious illnesses, and it focuses on providing relief from the symptoms and the stress of the illness. The goal is to improve quality of life both for the patient and for the patient's family. Thanks. So we spoke earlier about how private insurers are incentivized to cut down the cost of healthcare. Is that what Aspire's pitch to insurers is? Exactly. The pitch is work with us and we'll offer your beneficiaries palliative care when they need it so they stop racking up unnecessary medical costs like ER visits or hospital stays. So this is a money-saving strategy on the parts of these healthcare plans. And it's arguably an understandable one. One quarter of all Medicare spending, so that's $150 billion annually, goes to treating patients in their last year of life. Wow. Okay, so with that, let's hop on with Annie and see what she has to say. Oak HCFT is a venture capital firm that invests in early to growth stage healthcare and fintech companies, healthcare being the HC of your name and, and fintech being the FT of your name. You founded, the fund. <laughs> <laughs> you founded the fund back in 2014. Can you maybe tell us briefly about how you got into the space and why you decided to, to start the fund in the first place? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I have been doing uh, investing in healthcare for 30 years, um, and also started the fintech practice for uh, my pre prior firm. And we, there were three of us, uh, Andrew Adams, Trisha Kemp, and myself focused on healthcare and fintech. And we really felt like we wanted to go deep and broad. We just felt like 2012, 13, we could feel a moment where entrepreneurs were excited about uh, the opportunities. Um, in fact, you know, we were excited that more great technical talent was coming into healthcare. And we saw um, partly in the advent of Affordable Care Act, more companies being created, more opportunity, payment reform, you know, creating more opportunities. And we really wanted to build a team and just be, you know, dedicated to that and, and remain competitive. So we have added uh, 24 investment professionals in healthcare and fintech over that time. Can you maybe explain more about how the ACA helped jumpstart the space in your mind? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple things. Um, one, it was, it's interesting how just the conversation around healthcare and change and payment reform, um, it, it put a little fear into the existing legacy players and it just, it broadcast sort of opportunity to entrepreneurs and to the market. Um, so, you know, that was one aspect of it. And I think, uh, so with the advent of CMMI, which is the innovation arm of CMS that was created um, by the Affordable Care Act, new payment models were, uh, were going to be piloted and a billion dollars a year was allocated to this. 
which created incredible opportunities for entrepreneurs to think about uh, how would we del deliver payment, deliver healthcare differently and pay for it differently. Um, and, and that was absolutely enormous, I think, in terms of inspiring entrepreneurship in, the, uh, in healthcare. Huh. So what would you say the biggest differences that you saw, you, you said you had a sort of 30 year history in, in healthcare investing beforehand, what were some of the biggest shifts that you saw or the big, maybe the biggest shifts in the types of companies that you were investing in pre-2012 to 2013 and then post-2012 right. to 2013. In 2000, we shifted our mission from life sciences and thinking about healthcare services to thinking, because there was very little innovation in healthcare services over this decade, hmm. that we would be focused on healthcare uh, information companies, technology-enabled solutions and services that had a mission of lowering costs and improving quality. And that started in 2000 with Athena Health, first cloud healthcare company. And you know, think about it. That wasn't that was an exciting company, but it, well, mostly because the entrepreneurs were exciting and how they were approaching it. But it was a billing company. It was a you know not a particularly exciting theme, but incredibly exciting company and really the first one and became a you know multi billion dollar enterprise. So what we saw the rest of that decade, most of these models ended up not making dramatic differences. They, they were like the first generation of how do we tackle these problems. Growth was slower. Resistance to change was much slower. Um, we, we just saw that there was a legacy market. There was going to be more pressure on the market to lower costs. And information systems were to a place where it was much easier to actually affect change and provide better information in order to manage change. I mean, think about Athena Health in 2002. They were literally having to install the internet in doctors' offices. Wow. Yeah. That, they had to make that happen in order to implement a cloud-based solution. That was 2002. So That's things unbelievable. dramatically changed. Do you think that the pressure is coming from the consumer end or is that pressure coming from the regulatory bodies? Where is that pressure coming from? The pressure is in part coming from employers. The payers are obviously trying to create uh, pressure on providers. Providers tend to have a, a monopoly. You know, you'll go to most markets and there will be two or three, you know, call it an oligopoly in each market. Uh, so there's tremendous concentration. And so everybody's trying to sort of create uh, pressure points and leverage in the system. Um, and I would say probably the most innovative payment reform has come from Medicare Advantage and Medicare Advantage is there's fee-for-service Medicare, and then there's Medicare Advantage, which is simply uh, CMS paying health plans to cover uh, individuals. And they give them a set dollar amount, and then you know somebody like Humana or United then says for you know X thousands of dollars, I'm going to be taking care of you for the next year. Well, that is if if they in Humana or United can then actually save money, you know, deliver great care and save money, then they end up making money. So it's a model where uh, you've got health plans actually incented to provide quality care at lower cost because they're actually competing with these for these customers, right? They get it. You've seen uh, ads on the internet. You've seen TV ads marketing to seniors for Medicare Advantage. So it's actually a consumer-driven business. So they actually have to provide great service 
but they also have an opportunity to dramatically lower costs. And so we have 14 payer facing companies in our portfolio and they are delivering value to Medicare Advantage health plans who are then reaping the benefits of lowering costs. Could you give an example of how one of these companies is is taking advantage of these new innovative payment models to improve the delivery of care? Absolutely. Um, One is somebody like Aspire, which is a company that we backed. uh, The CEO is now head of CMMI, ironically, Brad Smith. Um, And this is a company we sold to Anthem about two years ago, uh, or I would say the entrepreneurs sold the company. We don't sell companies. Um, and what, what Aspire did was brilliant. And it was just the hospice model. And that is, um, you know, end of life. And you're generally, it's supposed to be dealing with the last six months of end of life. But hospice is on average, depending on the state, anywhere from 12 days to 20 days that it's actually being invoked and used. And it's really sort of too late. It's really too late. And people are not using it as a, as a benefit of the government appropriately. Um, and what I've always loved about hospice is that it's you know it's the it's palliative care, but it's so it's care where you're not treating the patient for cancer anymore. You're trying to keep people comfortable, and you are uh, trying to improve their quality of life and help literally spiritually support the family members around uh, the person who is at the end of life. And it's kind of this beautiful win-win-win model um, that hasn't really um, been used appropriately. So Brad Smith comes to me and he has created a palliative care model. It was the first model I had seen where that, that made sense in palliative care that could be scaled nationally. And that is that Brad went to health plans. He created an algorithm, went to health plans and said, I can identify in your population with just your claims data, who is most likely to die in the next 12 to 18 months. If you give me the opportunity to call those individuals and tell them I have a free service for them in which we will provide virtual and in-home care, and it's not a call that says you are most likely to pass in the next 12 months. It's a, these are people in distress. These are people that are showing up in the ER once a month in crisis. And it's a terrible place to be without any support around the system. So what happened was they just, it was like envelopment of these people with these care services and nurses and doctors that really help support the patients and caregivers in the home. And so really by just virtually keeping people out of the ER, because once you go in the ER, you end up inpatient and all of a sudden it's an 11,000 to $40,000 hospital bill. You know, if you are in the last six months of life, it is not gonna change the trajectory of your life to go into the hospital. You don't wanna die in the hospital either. Right, um, and that, there's, a fa- there's a fascinating right. statistic about that in, um, in Atul Gawande's book, Being Mortal, where there's this discrepancy between the percent of people who want to uh, die at home, which I think is about 60%, versus the reality, which is uh, most, most folks uh, end up dying in the hospitals against their will and palliative care as a, as a way of fixing that, that contradiction. Um, but I'm curious I, to I ask you- I think that percent is more like 90% would prefer to do Oh, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> I would. Yeah. Um, so with this fascinating sort of discrepancy here, what did you feel like was, was special about the way Aspire handled this problem 
which made it stand out from all the other companies that must have identified that most of healthcare spending is in end-of-life care. So it, there has to be financial alignment. And Brad was the first person that I met that created a business model where they were saving the health plan money and they were creating a great service for the patient. And nobody else had figured that out. Nobody else had gone to a health plan and said, here is how I am going to create this palliative care model that works for you. So it was, yeah, almost as simple as that. And just to understand that a little more, what, what was the counterfactual here in the case in which the algorithm wasn't provided to the health plans? What would they have done that would have cost them more money? Yes, they would have just not managed the patient and the patient would be showing up in the ER. The patient would have gone into hospice for the last 12 days of their life, as opposed to in the Aspire model where they get them into hospice sooner when it's appropriate. Um, and both of those things, staying out of the ER and going into hospice sooner, better for the patient and saves a ton of money. This is such a brilliant business model in my mind. and. It sounds like a lot of what excited you about Aspire was this predictive algorithm that, that they were able to come up with. And I'm kind of curious how you as an investor do due diligence on an algorithm like this. Do you bring a third party technical person in to, to help you validate that it's working in the right way? Right. We have our own resources. We really, we never use consultants. That's one reason we have 25 investment professionals. We all the uh, knowledge and expertise essentially resides in our uh, team. Got it. And I would love to talk a little bit about the ecosystem, and this is related to Aspire, but it sort of feels like, you know, you, you talked about how maybe there was a, a new wave of innovation that's happening now in healthcare and sort of these legacy uh, companies are starting to realize that there's a lot of potential innovation happening maybe in the earlier and growth stage companies. And it, it somewhat feels like a lot of these big companies end up acquiring a lot of these startups in the space and, and not just in, in this space, but in drug discovery or whatever it may be. And this acquisition seems like a brilliant acquisition from Anthem's point of view, right? They get access to this amazing algorithm that can help them lower their costs. And I'm curious how you think about this from an investor standpoint. When you invest in a company like Aspire, are you thinking this is going to make a great acquisition target one day? Or do you not think about that at all? Or are you just thinking, I want to make the best possible company we can make? Yeah, the, the latter. We just think about what, how do we make this the best company that we can make it? How do we support the entrepreneur? So often it, it is driven that liquidity decision is driven by what the entrepreneur wants. Um, and certainly in this case, that was, that was absolutely true. And I think it's been an amazing acquisition for Anthem. The company, I think, doubled the year we sold it. And I think the other exciting thing about this is that this became the CMS model for palliative care. So they're, they're actually taking their model and applying it to Medicare, Medicaid, um, and trying to roll out a reimbursement model within CMS. So I do feel like Aspire influenced uh, a whole national approach um, to palliative care. But, you know, back to this exit you know, question, I mean, this is something where there's some CEOs like a Jonathan Bush, you know, and Ed Park at Devoted and Todd, uh, and Todd Park at Devoted. They're people that will want to be building public companies. They want to be public company CEOs and they're building multi-billion dollar companies. 
And then there are, there are other entrepreneurs that don't want to be public CEOs or the scale of their business is, you know, is not really going to be appropriate because you really do need to be an over billion dollar valuation to be a public company. Do you think that the exit plans for companies in healthcare are very different than what they are outside of healthcare? Or do you think about it the same way as you would for your fintech portfolio? I think we think about it in the same way. But, you know, if you think about it, like hospital systems don't buy companies, you know, Epic doesn't buy, you know, software companies. So, but as we get more public healthcare IT companies, there are more public vehicles, you know, to buy. I would say what's different is that there is a private equity market that's exceedingly active in healthcare and fintech. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that there was sort of a, a growing PE market for, for healthcare companies. What, when did that start and, and what do you think the reasoning is behind that? It's definitely been more active in the last three or four years. You know, after the crash of 2000, you, you really change the dynamic in terms of the scale and size of a company that was needed to be a public entity and the risk to be a public entity. And so what's happened in the last five years is that the private equity market has really filled that gap that used to be those smaller companies that would go public. In fact, they don't even have to be small now. Obviously, there's so many dollars that have gone into private equity that you have massive liquidity that you can sell multi-billion dollar companies. That's fascinating. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit and ask about what the spaces within healthcare are that are either trying to reduce costs or improve care that you're particularly excited about. Well, I don't think that there's a space that doesn't want to do that. <laughs> um, I will say we, we have some brilliant companies that are selling uh, solutions to providers, but that is probably the toughest place to go. You've got, you know, 6,000 hospital systems across the country. Um, it's a very diffused market. Different hospitals want different solutions. We do have companies like Olive, uh, which are being very successful in that market. But I wouldn't recommend uh, that everybody rush into providing opportunity, you know, uh, opportunities for efficiency in the hospital. Um, it's, just, it's just tough. I think areas like we have invested heavily in primary care. Uh, we have five different investments, starting with One Medical. Um, that if you think about, yeah, One Medical was just a better consumer experience and, you know, nothing revolutionary. It just, there was, you know, the consumer experience is so bad in primary care that they created, you know, open table version, you know, of yeah. email prescriptions on the weekend. How novel. Okay. You mentioned Olive and I would love to talk about Olive more because okay. I think it's a fascinating business model. And so for our listeners, uh, Olive helps healthcare systems like hospitals to automate and optimize administrative tasks like revenue cycle management, supply chain management, clinical administration, and human resources. Customers pay one annual subscription, and then Olive will build out a custom product that right off the bat is helpful and will speed up their administrative workflows. But most importantly, over time, it's only getting better and better based on how it's being used. And so Olive markets itself as an AI as a surface company. Right. And I was thinking that maybe you could start by talking a bit about the differences between traditional SaaS companies, software as a service companies, and AI as a service business models. And as an investor, how do you think about those two? Yeah. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> 
because we don't, we think about solutions and AI and machine learning as just technology to create better solutions. And we don't think about them because I think most people think about AI used in healthcare as your, you know, re re replacing Dr. House. <laughs> I don't know if you remember that TV show. The reality is that we see AI as something to go after low level repetitive tasks. It's really for the simple things that one can replicate. And all those silly repetitive things that are done over and over again by people and often done inaccurately because people get bored and they do them wrong. You know, that, that's where we're going. And that's where Olive is going. Uh, that's where Syllable AI, another company we've invested in, like, you know, fascinating entrepreneur. I mean, think about what Syllable is doing. They're taking, they're literally reducing call center costs. And they're reducing it by about 70%. Is Syllable and or Olive, are they building new and different models for each and every customer? Or do they build one model that works for everyone? One model. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. So that's much more scalable than what I was envisioning. I was sort of worried that they were building sort of a custom product for every customer. No. Yeah, absolutely not. In general, it's fully replicable and uh, and yet there are also tools for you know if, if a hospital wants to build on the model they can they can advance the model with either of these companies so is that something you think about when you're investing in these companies sort of how how scalable is a solution oh, absolutely. absolutely yeah no custom solutions we really try to avoid that one of the points you mentioned earlier was uh, the difficulty in going to the providers. Um, in that it's a very diffuse system and there's no, um, there's no common sort of platform which one can go to, to, to scale. I'm curious, and I've often wondered this, what do you see as the uh, step or the timeline necessary for that to change? Uh, and do you think it'll change in a, in a world in which you have a marketplace and then you just go to the central marketplace and that's how it gets distributed to all these different providers? We are so far from that. I mean, you, you know, certainly that's my, that would be my dream scenario, but I would say we are a long way off from that. Um, I think there has been pressure. You know, if you think about Epic, which is the largest electronic health record company in the world, you know, where there's been a lot of pressure um, by the Fed, the federal government to have more interoperability and for them to be more cooperative. Um, but they have had a closed system and in a world that needs an open system um, and that has created incredible stress on the system. Um, but we, that is opening, you know, day by day, that is becoming, you know, easier for people to integrate um, through various APIs and fire and different standards. And uh, when, when companies are, um, are started with the idea of selling to the, to the payer rather than the provider, what is the sort of navigation steps that an entrepreneur takes to, to make that possible? Someone who, let's say, comes from outside the healthcare system into the healthcare system, large, complicated uh, to navigate, um, what would their pathway be? Well, I would suggest if you work with us, then we introduce you to all those people in, in the payer world and health plans, uh, you know, I think you either are uh, hiring, 
you know, a head of sales that is somebody who's done this over and over again with payers and is well known there. You, you align yourself with venture capitalists who understand this market and have strong relationships. And that's probably the you know, two best ways to do it. And is that what you would say your, your sort of advantages as an investor is being able to sort of offer your entrepreneurs these steps in, in or foot in the doors for these different hospitals or healthcare systems and, and advice you've sort of, you've seen all these companies either be very successful or, you know, totally fail. And you kind of know, you can kind of recognize patterns of what goes wrong and, and what works. Is that fair to say? It's certainly one of our advantages in the early days in terms of helping them get access and get to the right person and not waste time. That is helpful. I think there's so much more to it. And I think great and experienced entrepreneurs really appreciate that it's so much about the, just the broad level of experience and time we've had in this market and understanding, you know, and, and I mean, how to get to the customer when you need to move somebody on that's in, you know, that's the wrong person in the wrong role and everybody waits too long to remove somebody that needs to be moved on. And one of the hardest decisions entrepreneurs have to make, and I appreciate it. We, in our own organization, it's very hard uh, to tell people they're they're not making it. Uh, and then it's also just in the wholesale process. I mean, just all these things we've been through over and over. I've been involved in over, you know the sale of over a hundred companies now. So it's just that you know depth of experience, I think just um, is very helpful. How do you advise entrepreneurs into come in maybe not with a not with an idea of who to sell to in terms of who they should consider selling to? And maybe these are, you know, technology focused entrepreneurs who might not necessarily have exposure to the who is the payer and why would they pay? So what's your advice to uh, to uh, to entrepreneurs coming in with with no idea of who their who their uh, buyer should be? Well, I think if they have no idea who the buyer should be, then they haven't probably done the homework in the sense that I would be saying to them, you need to do a walkabout. It's not about technology. It's about the need. Like where, what problem are you trying to solve? You know, for whom? And so I would hope that they would have talked to people in the payer world or the provider world or the, you know, they may have their own idea about what's needed, but I think without that, real world testing of the idea and solution. They, they haven't done everything they need to do to really vet their idea. You mentioned that you've done tons and tons of deals this, in this space. I'm curious, what are some of the biggest mistakes that you've seen entrepreneurs make when it comes to, to healthcare companies? It's a good question. Um, I would say the, I mean, Number one is they think about it as a financial proposition, um, meaning as they get into they get into healthcare thinking about well think about Elizabeth Holmes making a lot of money, <laughs> you know. Um, so I think when you when you go into healthcare, truly you have to have the mindset from our perspective. How am I going to improve the system? How am I going to transform it positively? How can, am I going to lower costs? How am I going to improve quality? Do I really care? I mean, to, to us, we really want to get involved with people who care about the mission. And I think that really helps you stay safe because every time, you know, and it's one of the reasons we have invested in companies in Florida, but like often there seem to be entrepreneurs in certain markets that are really schooled. The old world entrepreneurs in healthcare were very schooled in the reimbursement schemes. 
So they would be very focused on certain rules that the federal government put in place or, you know, somehow something was reimbursed that didn't necessarily survive the test of, is that lowering the cost of healthcare? Um, hmm. And so if you're going to invest in somebody and it's really about the kind of cleverness and, you know, it could be like a stroke of the pen risk by the, you know, CMS. And all of a sudden you're out of, you know, like this doesn't make sense. I mean, what we found over 20 years is that if you're investing in something that lowers the cost of care, it is going to be very unlikely that you are going to be written out of a code somewhere. That's actually a great point. Can you talk a little bit more about how regulation plays a role in, in investing decisions that you make or how, I guess, laws don't change that often, but they always can. And that's scary. Absolutely. No, absolutely. Well, I think um, the evolution, we're talking about Medicare Advantage a lot um, right now, but when Medicare, uh, when Medicare Advantage came into place, say 20 years ago, Republicans actually brought it. They were proponents. Democrats were not that supportive of, of Medicare Advantage. They felt like it was a privatization of this public service that was working just fine and you know why are we introducing this but you know fast forward 20 years both sides it's a very bipartisan effort to expand medicare advantage because it really is a better proposition for the consumer in so many hmm. ways better care more coordinated care ultimately can lower costs um you know i think there are other things like exchanges i mean i was very supportive of the affordable care act but given the lack of bipartisan support, the constant you know, threats, we actually did not invest in any exchanges. We just mm -hmm. felt like that was something that was too fragile and fraught. And I think that's, that's where you just need to look at where things are from a political perspective, as well as is it on the right, is it on the right side of the angels? No, it makes sense. Because I do always think of healthcare as being a space that needs to you need to be much more aware of what's happening in the regulatory sphere yes. than, than yeah. say, you know, consumer products or something. Yeah, no. And it's one thing, I mean, I was a political science major at Stanford and I, I love policy and I just, you know, to me, it's, it's so strategically interesting because you're blending what you're doing in your everyday, but you're looking at policy from feds and from states. Um, and you're just thinking about the political environment and, you know, and so it makes it the, like this just fascinating rubric, Rubik's cube that you're working with all the time. And actually, speaking of your background in poli sci, I'm curious what advice you would have for young people who want to get into healthcare investing, but are worried they don't have an MD and maybe don't have the background that it takes to get in. Do you have any advice for what they should do to, to sort of strengthen certain expertise or, or I'm just curious what you would tell them? Sure. Well, I think, look, I think if you're investing in life sciences, biotech and biopharma, there's so many people with PhDs in that area that I think it's harder to be a good, really good investor without truly understanding the science. I think on the healthcare, um, you know, software and services side that you absolutely do not have to have a background, uh, an academic background to get into it. It is purely immersing yourself. If you really love it, I think, I think you just have to have a passion for it. And I think starting out early and getting involved in any way, working for a payer, working for a provider, getting in early, you know, going to an investment bank and, you know, or a private equity firm and, and um, being dedicated to the healthcare practice as opposed to being a generalist. If you want to be in healthcare, you probably want to get in early. 
but you have to be passionate about it. You really have to dedicate your career to it. I, I think. To finish, I want to ask you, Annie, where do you see uh, where do you see healthcare uh, in the U.S. in five years? We have so accelerated in the last six months where we were going from a healthcare perspective. I, I couldn't be more excited. I think the it's not just, yes, the telehealth and the teledocs, but it's the whole digitization experience that we're now seeing through people like TruePill that are able to create a product for health brands and for health plans where you're doing diagnosis in the home, where you're treating in the home, you know, a doctor commuting directly in the home, where you're prescribing to the home directly. This complete digital experience just wasn't available a year ago and is now available. So if you, th I think the transformation in five years of what we're doing in the home and direct to consumer that's supported by health plans is reimbursed by health plans because it's just another channel. You know, you're either directly going to a primary care doc in his, the facility or you're doing all these things, you know, from the comfort of your home. <laughs> and I think that the transformation is going to be amazing. The amount of things that we can now do in the home. So you think the, the, uh, the model that COVID has set for us is, is here to stay through the long term, and we're not, we're not going to go back. We're not going back. I mean, absolutely. We need to be able to go into the clinic and people be able to see people. Um, but I think this movement, you, you had two things happen. You change behavior of doctors and of patients, and you have reimbursement. CMS and payers have fought actually reimbursing telehealth, and there is no going back on that. So that was a huge change. Um, and I just think you also have technology that is now supporting it in unique ways. And I just think the next five years is going to be absolutely the most transformative in healthcare we have seen in a hundred years. Thank you so much, Annie, for being with us on the show. I uh, really enjoyed uh, having you. Thank this you. This was amazing. Annie, really thank you. Enjoyed the conversation. And that's all folks. A big thank you to Annie Lamont for talking to us today. And thank you for listening. We're your co-hosts Pranav and Adriel. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy but also stay hungry and stay foolish. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee. Music by Ethan A. Chi. Many thanks to consulting producer Margaret Catcher and to James Watson. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.